This is January 24th, 2016, but let me start this uh, because we did get a few uh, emails and Facebook posts with regard to the earthquake you know, last night at 1.30 or so in the morning. Very interesting to me because having lived through the 1964 earthquake, which was 9.2, this was apparently a 7.1 almost, and uh, 150 miles south of Anchorage apparently, uh, it, it, um, it did rattle us pretty good at 1.30 in the morning, and it had the same feel as the 1964 earthquake, which went on for over five minutes and destroyed almost everything it, it touched. So that was a different experience, but I could feel the same. I got up and I said to Lori, this has that feeling to it. And that, that means it started out relatively benign and then built and made more noise and built and made more noise. This one stopped. I don't know. How long did it last, you guys? Did it go over a minute? No. 30 seconds? Yeah. Between... It was over. You could tell it was going to ebb quickly. The other one never ebbed. And, and we had long conversations, Cindy and, and Ken and I, talking about it. We had long conversations during that thing, and, uh, and you never forget it. But this one had that feel to it for a brief period of time. Uh, Anna called and said during the, uh, uh, during the earthquake, she said she was screaming, now I know why my dad puts plywood on everything. I do, if I, and that's my rule. Take down sheetrock, put up plywood. I plywood everything and then put the sheetrock back. I've done it literally to my entire house. I've sheared off all the interior walls of 90% of the buildings I've ever built because I went through that earthquake. I know what that feels like. That's one of my reasons. Anyway, uh, uh, I also had teenage sons who threw rocks at each other inside the house. Okay, they were spears. I didn't want to say that. I have pulled sheetrock down and I have I've seen the spots where they I, I repaired the walls. They were throwing a spear at each other in the living room. Uh, Eric, of course, uh, set up a shooting gallery with a, with a pellet gun in the living room, which was, he was actually pretty good. He, he missed all the windows. They were His targets were below the windows. It was only about a 35-foot shot. Anyway, enough of that. We are safe here. The earthquake did not hurt anybody as far as I know. It did a little bit of damage, and it's, it was uh, quite uh, frightening um, for a while. But everything is fine for those of you out there. I don't know how Homer and Kasilov, I know there was some road damage down south. It was pretty extensive, but Anchorage uh, escaped again. But we know we're in the ring of fire. Uh, we could get hit again at any time. We're not worried about that that much. Uh, we're certain nobody builds big, tall buildings in Anchorage because of that 1964 experience. And uh, no one's worried about snow here uh, either. We're not getting much of that. New York has all our snow. But if we got two feet of snow, uh, we wouldn't be that freaked out by it, uh, as you would be aware down in the States. Okay. Enough of that. January 24th. 2016 lecture discussion number 227 on the book of Romans. Uh, last week in lecture uh, 226, I noted that there were these great multitudes following Christ at Luke 14:25. Great multitudes. And we began to discuss that. And we backed up uh, a bit to Luke 
15 through 24 to establish the context of Luke 14:25. By that, uh, for those who might have missed that section of lecture, um, lecture number 226, we went back to see who was in those great multitudes because there's parables right in front of these great multitudes that give us an understanding of who might, been, who might have been following Christ and why. And, and yes, I am publicly admitting, by the way, to intentionally segmenting the lectures. By that I mean, uh, well, an analogy would be like this. This is the best I could come up with. I look at every week, I say, okay, let me take this photograph of the Bible, this photograph of the Bible, and another one and another one. I combine three or four seemingly diverse photographs, if you will, and I put them together because I know they fit. And you get a singular picture. And that's at least my hope. That's what I try to do. I'm not always successful at it. I am... Uh, Usually, however, usually surprised at those who gravitate to a particular section. Or, in other words, who likes what picture or what photograph. When I put it together, I think, wow, this is really cool how this all fits together. Everybody's going to like this final assembly. But they don't. They pick on one particular aspect all the time. And I never know, uh, seldom do I predict accurately who will focus on what. Which one of my sections, if you will, my segments, is going to be particularly interesting? Which is why I continue to do it this way, by the way. I have a hesitancy to eliminate a photograph now, after all these years. Because that might be the one that allows the greater picture to be seen. I got a letter recently from Sharon in Cincinnati, who pretty much reiterated exactly what I'm saying. I don't know what someone out there somewhere is going to see, so I don't want to leave anything out now. I go ahead and I do all of that. And last Sunday, one of those photographs was the lifting up of the brazen or the brass or the bronze serpent from Numbers 21. So that is a photograph that fits into Luke 14. And so we went back and we did that. That's where the nation of Israel, a great multitude, is following Moses. Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15. I can't say that enough. One of the great verses in Scripture. I get asked all the time, what's your favorite verse in Scripture? They always think I'm going to take something that is conventional. You know better. My favorite Scripture is Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses says that you will know who God is, who the Messiah is, if you can. He is. A, he's going to be like me. I am a type of the of the Messiah. And in huge volumes of books have been written on Deuteronomy 18:15 uh, categorizing every single element of the life of Moses that is a picture of Christ. This last one account that I found is they've documented or they've listed over 500 elements of Moses that are types of Christ or prophecies of Christ. But anyway, so I have a great multitude following Moses, who is a picture of Christ, the foremost picture in all of the Bible. So I know now immediately that this corresponds to Luke 14, 25, right? And so alongside of the great multitudes of Israel, I have the great multitudes of Luke 14, 25, which is the poor, the maim, the lame, the blind, following Christ, based on the context of those parables, Luke 14, 13, Luke 14, 21. So that's what I did. Those I grabbed that that photograph and this photograph, and I put them together. If that makes sense. And this brass serpent, 
bronze serpent is also a symbol of Christ, as most of you know. Jesus himself says it is. That makes it really astonishing. That also makes it what? Very complicated. This is God saying, that bronze serpent is me. That means that bronze serpent is extraordinary. If you, as I always give this disclaimer or caveat to people, if you think you understand the meaning of the bronze serpent, don't raise your hand. If you are somebody who thinks you understand the meaning of the bronze serpent, you are wrong. You might have a very small piece, but you do not have. This isn't an iceberg. An iceberg is a tip with a huge mass below. I don't know what would be equivalent to it. This is something that is largely undiscovered. We'll get to that in a minute. But Christ himself assigns it personally to himself, to his own lifting up. So I have the lifting up of the brass or the bronze serpent, and I have the lifting up of Christ. And Christ does it in the most well-known scripture in the Bible, right? He does it in um, John 3.14 and 3.15. Every, this, by the way, is one of the, uh, of the shames of the Christian church. You all know 3.16. But John 3.16 is predicated, is built on John 3.14 and John 3.15. To quote John 3.16 without quoting John 3.14 and 3.15 is misleading. You've taken the context away from John 3.16. The context is the bronze serpent. That is where Christ says, uh, and as Moses lifted up the brass serpent in the wilderness, I added the brass to that, as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, because God so loved the world, or for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, of which there is only one, that whosoever believes in the lifted up Son, who is a is the fulfillment of the lifted up bronze serpent, shall not perish but have eternal life. If you take the bronze serpent out of 316, as we always do, right? You've lost the meaning of it. You've stripped out the context. And that's too bad. That bronze serpent is amazing. Those three verses, all of them reference the type, the symbol that was the brazen serpent of Numbers 21, 4 through 9. Again, 316 is the conclusion of 314 and 315. Why would you not give us or give out the foundation of 316? Again, here's an event that God himself definitively applies to himself. And even so, that's the case. It still remains a great mystery, mostly unsolved. Bible scholars recognize that Numbers 21.8 was a prophecy fulfilled by Christ at his crucifixion, but mostly the aspect of the brass or the bronze serpent, whichever you prefer, are unresolved. We don't have a firm understanding of it at all. For example, ah, excuse me, I had to take more medicine. Uh, Sharon in Cincinnati, yes, you are correct. Uh, that my medicine is uh, Diet Coke. 
do not fear. It is a slow and painful uh, process, so I should be around for a little while longer. I appreciated your letter, by the way. We know the serpent is a portrait of sin and death. It's poison. We know that. If I said serpent to you, you say back to me, sin and death and poison. Brass is considered foremost to be judgment and fire. So I have sin and death and poison and judgment and fire. And that is the solution. That is the conclusion to, and that is how we, con- we conclude, so God, loves, God so loved the world, is based on sin, death, judgment, poison, fire, right? So how has Jesus Christ designed this symbol specifically, exactly? Let's just ask a couple of questions really fast. What did Moses' servant, servant, serpent, look like? Now, you've seen artists' renditions. But what did it actually look like? Does anyone know? How was it made? Immediately, when Moses has a, raises up a serpent on a rod, on a stick, I know that I have a relationship to Aaron's rod. So the brazen or the brass snake and Aaron's rod have to fit together sometime. I'm certain there must be a connection. Just think about it. Aaron's rod was cast down, right? Exodus 7, 8 through 13. What did the rod become? A serpent. So I have a rod and I have a serpent. Exodus 7. Right? I'll put the X there. Aaron's rod did what? Once it became a serpent. It swallowed up serpents. Of the Egyptian sorcerers or magicians, whichever you prefer. So I have one snake that came out that was came from a rod, defeats many snakes in Exodus 7. What do I have in Exodus, or I'm sorry, Numbers 21? I have a lifted up snake that does what? Defeats many snakes. That's correct. The rod is cast down and becomes a serpent. The serpent is lifted up on a rod. So clearly, whatever is happening in Numbers has a relationship to Exodus 7. And that's just one of many elements to consider to help us solve this mystery. Hezekiah. He goes and he finds the bronze serpent in 2 Kings 18.4. What does he do with it? Do you know? Do you know that story? He breaks it into pieces because they're worshiping it. So he destroys it. That's a very important piece of information. And as we get into this, we're going to have to confront Hezekiah and Josiah. They are two pieces. Those two guys fit together as well that lead to great truths. Anyway, I'm getting ahead of myself as I am one to do. So we should revisit Numbers 21, 4 through 9 and reestablish this contextual discourse and see what we got there. So here we go. Numbers 21. I'll start at 4. Purposely starting at 4. Why do I do that? Because I'm trying to force you into a position that you can't defend. That's right. Absolutely. That's what I'm doing. I'm leaving something out on purpose to trick you. It probably will work again. So let's start at verse 4. Even though you know that's a trick. What should you be doing right now? That's right. Looking at verses 1, 2, and 3. Okay. 
Then they journeyed from Mount Hor all the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, Edom, and the soul of the people became very discouraged on the way, and the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There's no food and no water, and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That's the manna, right? So the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, and many of the people of Israel died. Therefore the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you, pray to the Lord that he take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and put it on a pole, and so it was. If a serpent had bitten anyone, then he looked at the bronze serpent and he lived. Or when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So there's our context. And of course, because we're list makers, list makers going to list, and we'll make a list. Everybody loves them some lists, or not. So let me erase what I've got. Because this is going to be a long list. Because those verses are packed with questions. I just started counting questions before I wrote this. And I was well over a hundred questions. Now, I'm not going to do that to you. But no, there are hundreds of questions here. So, Israel is going around Edom. Now, I'm shortening the list. So, they're going around Edom. Shortening the words. You have to know. What's the first question there? Who's Edom? Why are they going around them? Where does this fit in here? The soul of the people is discouraged. Why does God save the soul? He does that all the time. He never calls you a body. He always calls you a soul, right? The soul of the people are discouraged, became very discouraged. What's the obvious questions now? You start thinking of them while I keep writing. The people spoke against God. And against Moses. So it wasn't just against God. They also spoke against Moses. They linked them together. Was that, by the way, a theologically sound thing to do? Absolutely it was, because Moses, Deuteronomy 18.15, won't say that enough, is a type of Christ, and their God and Christ are one and the same. Sameness. Triunity. And they ask, why have you put us here in the wilderness to die? So, why did you bring us into the wilderness to die? Why did you bring us to die in the wilderness? Whatever you would like. I'm just going to put why die wilderness. No food here. There's no food. There's no water. What's the first thing you ask? Is that true? Is it really no food, no water there? Did he bring him into the wilderness to die? Our soul. Here we are back up here. Our soul. What is your soul, by the way? Is it mental or is it physical? Is it a mental property or a physical property? 
It is a mental property, if you will, non-physical. Our soul hates, loathes. Our soul hates and loathes this worthless bread. I cannot, I cannot uh, emphasize loathes and hates and worthless and bread. Let me change bread to manna for you. We, why did you bring us into this wilderness? Why did you bring us to die in this wilderness? There's no food. There's no water. Our soul hates this worthless manna. So that's our list. And from this situation where they became discouraged and they begin to speak against God and Moses and they say this exact accusation, die, no food, no water, hate, worthless bread. From that situation, if you will, comes consequences immediately. So let's ask a bunch of obvious questions. Again, why are they going across or going around Esau? Because the Edomites are descendants of Esau. So I could ask it this way. Why are they avoiding Esau? These are uh, the descendants of Esau. Ultimately, Moses will lead Israel past the Moabites, who are the descendants of Lot. So Esau and Lot are in this equation. Deuteronomy 2, 1 through 9. We'll get to that next week. Israel is led around them. And God calls the Edomites and the Moabites, he calls them the brethren of Israel. And he says to Israel, I am not going to give you the lands of the Esau's or the Lot's or the Edomites and the Moabites. He, We're going to have to investigate that. Will we do it today? No. But that's just one of your questions. For those of you who, who've figured out that I left out those other verses in Numbers 21 and you backed up and you read the final verses of Numbers 20 and Numbers 21, you have discovered that all of this is in the context, if you will, one of the elements of the context is the death of Aaron. Aaron is now dead. So Aaron's dead. And all of this begins to happen. It's not only the death of Aaron... But in the first three verses, I have this incredible defeat of the Canaanites, the southern Canaanites. So our order becomes this. The death of Aaron, a period of mourning, then this great military victory where Israel is vows that they will destroy all of the southern Canaanite cities. And God honors this vow. By destroying everything, what does that mean? That means they get nothing out of it. They just go and destroy it. There's nothing for them to take. So I have the death of Aaron. By the way, the death of Aaron signals something in Scripture. When Aaron dies, that means he is the last one outside of Moses who is of Israel, of that generation. As soon as he dies, there is no one left of that generation. So that that, that is a delineation. And God honors this vow to take no spoil from the southern Canaanites. And then he tells them to go around Edom. And ultimately, he tells them to go around Lot. He calls the Lots and the the Esau's, if you will, the Moabites and the Edomites. He calls them the brethren of Israel and says you can't have any of their stuff. Why does he do that? 
What about Esau? What about Lot? What about those people? Makes them, puts him into a protected status. So, have you noticing the trend so far? We've got, we've only got to A. How many questions I got? And I'm not even coming close. To get through one item of our list is going to take months. And we're not going to do that because it's just not practical, is it? But I, I need you to know as much as I can that this is the way the Bible is. And so um, you're on your own in some regard. I'll do what I can, but uh, it will not be comprehensive. It never is comprehensive. Nonetheless, we're going to proceed. Why are these people becoming discouraged? The soul. Why does he mention the soul besides the obvious fact that they're living souls just like you? You are a two-part being. You have a physical part and a non-physical part. Substance dualism. Why is it that the soul of the people are very discouraged and then they speak out against God? Effectively, uh, what they're doing is they accuse God of being a lying killer. That is pure evil. Let me repeat it. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? There is no food and no water and our soul loathes this worthless bread. That is saying that God, you are a, you're a liar. You have brought us out here not to establish us, not for worship, not to make us a great nation, not to bless the earth. You have brought us out here to kill us. They're charging God of great treachery, pretending to save them, pretending to bless them, but instead always intending to murder Israel in the wilderness or the desert to starve them, let them die without thirst, or let them die without water of thirst. And again, right before that, death of Aaron, great military victory over the Canaanites, southern Canaanites, and they've gone around Edom are gone around Esau, and will go around Lot, and they get very discouraged after their vow. What, from a great victory to this, what has happened? By the way, Israel has a pattern. They're very predictable. At some point, they're always going to try to do the same thing. Israel is always going to try to kill Moses. Aaron's dead, so they're not planning to kill Moses and Aaron. But most of the time, they're trying to kill the high priest and the mediator. Both of those men are pictures of Christ. Israel is always trying to kill Christ. By the way, how's the first four Gospels of the the New Testament? What's Israel trying to do there? Always trying to kill Christ, right? So I have this always trying to kill God thing going on in Israel. Do they ever succeed? No, you can't kill God. In a large section of Israel, or in the case of the Pharisees, all of the Pharisees um, had this pattern of attempting to kill Christ. In this case, it's Moses. Moses is a type of Christ, Deuteronomy 18.15. I'll say that over and over and over again. Not only is Moses a type... But when they hate the bread, the bread, of course, the manna, is also Christ. That is the pure food, if you will, descending from heaven. 
that must be gathered up, by the way. That's an interesting doctrinal issue, isn't it? But Christ is the manna. He's the bread. He, he's also the living water. He's uh, from the rock, right? So thus Israel, theologically speaking, has screamed at Christ. And he is, by the way, the I am. Exodus 3. And they are saying to Christ, I'm going to quote them in my own little words here. Israel is theologically saying this to Jesus Christ. You are a wicked murderer. You are worthless. There is no promise. There is no eternal blessing of life. We hate you and we hate Moses who represents you. That is the accusation in its entirety. And again, to repeat, how did they get to this place? What is the anatomy, the steps? It is an unmistakable, full rejection of Jesus Christ. Why? What made him do it? He just had a big victory. Granted, you didn't get any stuff. You just got led around the Esau's and the lots. Didn't get any stuff there either. Is it the lack of stuff that caused this? And as a result of this unmistakable full rejection of Jesus Christ, what do we have next? What comes next? We have fiery serpents. So more listing. You can all say yay, yay, more lists. So now, H-I-J, look at me, still organized. Fiery serpents come. Fiery serpents come immediately after. Why did you bring us into the wilderness to die? There's no food, no water. Our soul hates and loathes this worthless bread. Fiery serpents. So I go from this to this. That accusation leads to fiery serpents. And what happens there? I have... They come in the people that are bit, and many die. What's the obvious question? And that goes on. And then they come and they say, we have sinned. And yes, I'm leaving some out just to, to make it fit into the 54 minutes. So that is, of course, a confession. They confess that they have sinned. Obvious question, what is their sin? And Moses now is in his intercessor role. He is the mediator for the people of Israel. Christ, of course, right now is in his mediator, high priest, intercessor First, he came as the prophet like unto Moses, and now he is the high priest, mediator, intercessor. That's where Christ is, and he will return as king. So I have three phases of Christ's redemptive work. One, of course, is uh, the, the prophet. The second is the high priest. The third is the king. And, he, and Moses is told, he prays, he intercedes, and he prays, and he is told by God, and by the way, this is the voice of God, so it can be the Holy Spirit, it can be the Father, or it can be Christ. So you decide who it is, or is it all three, 
And he is told to make, make a fiery serpent. And put it on a pole. Okay? What else is carried on a pole? What's that? No, but what else is besides yesterday? He put it on a pole. I, by the way, again, from last week, I got how many? I got a couple of million people here. How tall is the pole? How big is the serpent? We'll get to that in a minute. But what else in the Bible? Every time I see a pole, besides, huh, yes, that's right. I have the Ark of the Covenant is carried on poles. So clearly, I have a relationship not just between the crucifixion of Christ and the rod of Aaron, but now I've got to go figure out how the Ark of the Covenant explains the fiery serpent. Does that make sense? See how easy this is? What's that? I'm sorry, I couldn't hear. Banner? Oh, flag? That's an interesting question. Um, I'll have to make a note. Go find out how. And it shall be. That's what God says. Make a fiery serpent. Put it on a pole. And God says all the time, carry the, put, put the ark on poles. So again, we have that connection. And it shall be that everyone... Everyone who is bitten. So all the people that are bitten. What's the obvious question there? Yeah, good for you in the front row. I'll not not tell the internet audience, but you guys are starting to do this. Good for you. Everyone that is bitten, when he looks, when he looks, uh, shall live. And that, of course, is incredible. And then let me uh, make sure I haven't let any sound. So Moses made a bronze serpent and he put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. So let's, let's go ahead and put that all down as best we can. I have a, now I have a bronze serpent on a pole. Moses did it. Uh, uh, I've asked the question many times, but we'll get to it in a minute. But I've tried to figure out the relationship between bronze and fiery, because I've heard it called a fiery serpent and a bronze serpent now, right? I've repeated it. So I want to know if it's interchangeable. Can I interchange fiery with bronze? Is it a fiery bronze serpent, or is it a fiery serpent a bronze serpent and both fiery and bronze are the same. Does that make sense? If it does, you're thinking like me. So, and he says, if a serpent had bitten. Isn't that interesting? If a serpent. What are the implications of that? Bert bitten someone when he looked. When. He looked. He lived. Now, who said that? God said that. Let me repeat what God said. 
Then the Lord said to Moses, make a fiery... How complicated a thinker is God? Omniscient God is very, very precise. When he uses a word, he has thought how the word goes, what all the omnidirections it has. He obviously omniscience makes him choose his words. That's not a well, well. That's a humanistic way of approaching it. The words of omniscient God are unbelievably infinite and complicated. Make a fiery serpent. Set it on a pole. And it shall be that everyone who is bitten when he looks at it shall live. What's God's definition of live? What's the duration of life when God says life? Okay, there's our second list. There's our list, and that, by the way, is a lifetime of study, and I got about 18 minutes to go. So, how are we going to do? Lower your expectations. That's what you got to do, as usual. It obviously becomes important to determine the totality of meaning of the fiery serpent. What does this phrase mean? What does fiery mean? And we know serpent is a symbol for death, sin, and poison, if you will, right? So, let's ask some obvious questions. It becomes important to understand it, I believe. What is a fiery serpent? Put yourself in the scene how many of you are there? Millions? A couple million probably in this multitude following Moses? And fiery serpents come because you made somebody, a bunch of, who made this accusation that caused the fiery serpents to come? Here come the fiery serpents. What do they look like? How big are they? Little tiny fiery serpents? How many? How many? Those are important questions. Hezekiah destroys the bronze serpent that depicts this, that is a picture of Christ. He eliminated a record. Did he make a mistake? No. So why was this record destroyed? Who was, on whose behalf, if you will, was Hezekiah operating when he destroys the evidence of what the fiery serpent looked like? Yes, why would God do this? Why would he have Hezekiah do it? Why not just, hey, they're worshiping it. They're clearly idiots. Why should he destroy it? Why don't he just take it and hide it someplace? Not happening. What other symbol of Christ does this ever happen to? You answer that question while I go on. These are important questions, and I'm just... I want you to wonder why this is going on the way it is. But I submit the key question is not the size, the color, or the exact poisoning effect of the fiery serpent. Many commentators think that is the uh, the key question. I do not. I do not think that the the fiery serpent's effect is in, is uh, of the greatest significance. I think it is who. What I mean by that is who, in case you were wondering. What I mean by who is who got bit. When the fiery serpents came, did they target somebody? Or were they ubiquitous? Who was bitten? Note that many died. Many died. And Bill 
the fast in the front row, immediately ask, how many is many, as you're supposed to ask. That is one of the questions of Cliffside Community Chapel. Always ask, how many is many? So, I got two and a half million people maybe sitting here. I think that's a reasonable estimate. Certainly over a million. Uh, how many were bitten? What's the ratio, the, if you will, the, the mathematical uh, element here? I have all of Israel. How many died? And of the ones that died, how many were bitten? Obviously, everybody was bitten, but did I have any survivors of the bitten? Obviously, I have survivors of the bitten. Not all the bitten died, but some of the bitten died, and that was many. How many is many out of the the total of Israel? And that, of course, leads us to ask the most obvious of the obvious questions. Were there Israelites who were not bitten? So I have non, do I have bitten and I had non-bitten? Obviously, somebody made the bronze snake. Did Moses make the law, the bronze snake himself? Or did he, did he assign that? Did that go up for bid? God said, make a bronze snake. And Moses said, okay, I'm taking bids for a bronze snake. Who wants that job? How long did it take to make a bronze snake? What do you think? I'm going to give you a job of making the bronze snake. How much, how long are you going to take you? I, so I'm really asking this, and how long did this snake biting, killing people go on? Did it go on for a couple of hours? Go on for days? many days? Go on for a week? How long do I got snake biting people? People dying. Many died. How fast did the poison kill somebody? A couple of hours, a couple of minutes? Talking black mamba here? Or did it take days? What does God typically do? Does He kill people Really fast, or does he have time for you to repent? What kind of person is God? A a merciful God, isn't he? Can we agree on just one thing, that Moses was not bitten? Can we all say, Moses, not bitten. How about the guy that made it? Did Moses make the snake thingy, or did somebody else do it? And I know that sounds irreverent, but, but I'm just trying to help you out here. If Moses was not bitten, why not? If somebody else was not bitten, why not? Why wasn't Moses bitten? Who else wasn't bitten? Why not? Is it happenstance? Is it just going through, just biting everybody? Just give you, is, is this luck? What's that? Oh, what very good. That's right. In other words, what is the difference between the bitten and the not bitten? And of course, how long did it take to die from the poison? Again, hours, days, weeks, how much time is involved in this? Do you think this is really quick or really long? By really long, it's relative. I recognize it's a relative term. But most of you, I suspect, read this, if you're typical, and you think all of this occurred in... Two hours, three hours. I'm going to say to you, it is far more likely that it was 60 to 90 days. 
Certainly far more likely that it was seven days or three days. Why would it be just a few hours? Does God do this kind of thing quickly? Many commentators assert that fiery describes, again, to the effects of the poison. And that the fiery means they had a great fever and a thirst or a burning. In any event, these bitten and dying and dead people cause a meeting. This goes on for a period of time and somebody says, we have to have a meeting with Moses. How long, how many people died? Many people died. How many died before they said, okay, that's enough, we've got to have a meeting? And who comes to the meeting? How long did they wait? How much time passed before the meeting? I see, am I emphasizing that to you purposely? Did they only come to Moses after all their other ideas failed? What do you think of human nature? These people hate Moses. They're trying to kill Moses. They want Moses dead. They loathe God. They hate Christ. They hate the bread. They say there's no water. There's no food. By the way, let's go back to that. Was there water? Sure there was. Water in rocks. God has water whenever he wants water. So why would they lie about no food and water? There's manna coming down. That's clearly food. Who are they trying to, to control here? Why? Lies by politicians. Politicians lie. What's their purpose? What are they trying to manipulate you into doing? So my, my point is, is that they come to Moses only after all their other concepts or ideas or plans fail. So what else did they attempt to do? A bunch of snakes are coming in, biting and killing people. What did they do? They fought the snakes. Isn't that not what you do? A bunch of people with shovels? So now we have to have, we got to figure out how many people, how many snakes are there? Were they able to kill the snakes? Obviously, they weren't able to stop the snakes, did they? Because they had to have a meeting. They were losing the snake fight. Snakes were winning. So how many snakes did I have? Did the snakes come in the daytime? The snakes say, hey, I'm a snake. Kill me before I fight you. Or did they come at night? How long did this last until Moses was asked to fix it? Please go to God, Moses, and stop this. We hate you. We're trying to kill you. Now we're coming to you saying we surrender. This is a surrender. We have sinned. Now make the personal application. Do you have to surrender to Christ? Isn't there a nice hymn about surrendering? Yes, we do. At some point, the Israels came, surrendered, and confessed. We have Spoken against the Lord and against you. We have sinned. And I would say so. I say that's very accurate. They declared God their creator, the creator of all things, to be an evil, lying murderer. They hated him. They hated his plan of salvation. They hated his manna. They hate Christ himself. And because of this, they're poisoned. Now some, 
me go a different direction here. There are people, there are pastors, there are churches, not very many, but there are quite a bit, who share the sentiment of these Israelites who sinned against the Lord. And they're going to present it this way. They're going to say to you, well, look here. The Israelites said God is a murderer who brought them into the wilderness to die. There's no food, there's no water, and they hate his worthless bread. His bread is worthless. And what, what does he do? As soon as that happens, fiery servants come out, serpents come out, and then kills people. So God, see, see this? God is really a, a murderer. God sent the fiery serpents to kill these dissenters. You dissent against God, he kills you. See, all these poor people did is, is all they did was uh, hate God and reject Him, and for that, God lets them die. Actually, sends the serpents to kill them. That lecture is pretty common. Certainly, in the agnostic atheist secular world, this is one of the passages they use to uh, to do exactly what was done. They say God's evil with it. You'll see uh, this very uh, very often. Uh, It'll be either that or it'll be a similar objection, argument, whatever, remonstration. Those who hate Jesus Christ, those who loathe judgment for rebellion, and what I mean, they loathe the judgment for their rebellion or for their rejection of God's directives or his precepts or his truths. Those who hate Christ, and loathe, therefore, the judgment that comes, the accountability that is coming for us all. They were These people who will say, Jesus Christ does not have the right to rule over us. The creator of me cannot rule over me. They always drift to this posture. They insist that God is evil for allowing them to face the inevitable fiery serpents or consequences of their rebellion. And this is why it becomes necessary to solve the math at Numbers 21. Same math question, different way to say it. How many rebels are there in the group? How many sinned? How many spoke against the goodness of God, against Moses? What's the percentage of the whole of Israel? This is an insurrection, a revolt. What is their ultimate intent? Kill Moses. They always desire to kill Moses. Moses, after all, is the foremost type of Jesus Christ in the Old Testament. So, by extension, they always desire to kill Jesus Christ. Is God evil for, present, or for preventing the rebels from killing Jesus Christ? Or in this case, Moses. Is it evil for God to say, I'm not going to let you Attempt to kill me. I'm going to stop you. What would be said of God if he does not intercede to stop those who wish to kill his prophets and destroy his plan of salvation? If he doesn't protect his plan of salvation, who is going to be saved? Would you have been saved had he not intervened? He has this process of salvation. What is said if none are saved by the one who is salvation himself? Certainly Christ will and must intervene to protect his truths. His goodness, his omnibenevolence cannot be overcome. It cannot be overcome. What's it take to overcome omnibenevolence? Infinite goodness. What's it take? It takes infinite power. Who's got it? 
Only God has infinite power. Infinite power and infinite goodness require infinite knowledge. Infinite presence. Okay. We have sinned is a key piece in this event. At some point, we have sinned is said. And they that say it ask Moses to pray for them. And Moses, who is a picture of Jesus Christ, is a picture of Jesus God, with the full knowledge that he is praying for those who sought to kill him, does it. Make the application. And they say, please take away the serpents from us. Please, we hate you, God. We want you to die. We think your salvation is worthless. We want to live in sin. Please take away the serpents from us. Please do not let us suffer the consequences of our sin. And God does it. And how does God take away sin and death and poison? There's only one method, one way to do it. Put a bronze serpent on a pole, lift it up. If a serpent, if a serpent had bitten anyone, what's implied there? There were some that's not bitten. That person, what's implied with that? That there's some that didn't get bitten, obviously. If a serpent had bitten anyone, when that person looked intently, and the word, by the way, is, is intentional, attentiveness, focus. It isn't, that person is, is looking there. He might be miles away, but he's looking where he's supposed to look because he wants to be saved. If he, if he looks intently at the lifted up Christ, he lived. This literally actually happened. Those who looked at the lifted up Christ lived here in Numbers 21. How many of them understood the doctrine when it was done? What if the bitten person was blind? What if the bitten person couldn't hear? What if the, lifted, the bitten person couldn't lift himself up to see? Did he not? It didn't, didn't fulfill the contract of salvation. Forgot, uh, it didn't get it properly notarized, left out his middle name. And so God said, oh, sorry, you've made an error. And I'm, I'm reneging. How many are bitten and not blind? Answer that. You can answer it individually. You can answer it theologically. How many are bitten and not blind? Obviously, the sin of we have sinned is directly related to this solution, isn't it? Sin is symbolized by the serpents as is death. Death and sin must be put to death. You notice that? In other words, I have, I have sin and death, which is a serpent, and it must be put to death and lifted up on a pole and be bronzed. This is, an, is the explanation of 2 Corinthians 5.21, the great mystery of God adding perfect humanity. Anyway, if a serpent had bitten anyone, I will argue again that the implication that some were not bitten is inferred here. Some did not reject, some held fast, and God intervened to preserve them. Because after we kill Moses, who's next? 
What was the plan of these people who loathe and hate and think and, and lie about food and water? What was their ultimate end? What is the motive of the Antichrist? What is the motive of the Pharisees? There's always the same motive. This is the singular nation that knew the true God of creation. No other nation at this time knew the true God. The charge of Israel was to teach the world of the true creator and teach of his holiness, his justice, his goodness, his mercy. I think it is clear that those bitten were guilty of saying this. That's who got bit. Those guilt bitten were guilty of hating Jesus Christ. To do so, to choose so, to hate Jesus Christ is to willfully march to condemnation. So who would choose to perish? Who chooses to perish? What's the question there? How many choose to perish? In the world today, how many choose to perish? What percentage? There's the blood. There's the cup. They refuse it. Okay, quick questions as we shut it down. Is it as a, as a musician's dutifully and correct traditional order with all the pomp and assorted circumstance begin to make it forward to the holy area of the stage? Is the Bronze serpent, a replica of the snake made of bronze? Or is it actually a dead snake encapsulated in bronze? You decide. What is the meaning of the bronze? Why isn't the snake made of gold or silver? What is the relationship to the Ark of the Covenant that is also on poles and lifted up? Why did Hezekiah destroy it? What Does all of this have to do with Luke 15? The found sheep, the found coin, and the found son. Next week, we will figure that out. Maybe. Maybe not. Maybe just thousands more questions. This is where they do what? That's right. Stand and be dismissed.